When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is up, all of you beautiful people, and welcome back to the All Eyes Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4, Post-Indiana Game Edition. My name is Robert Donaldson, and you can follow me on Twitter at RobDFB, and as always, I'm joined by my phenomenal co-host, who's dishing out passing charts left and right, Thad Nelson. You can find him on Twitter at TNels20, and basically, this podcast is just going to be us taking a massive victory lap for how well we previewed that Iowa-Indiana game because, man, oh, man, are we just genius or what? (laughs) I'm just kidding. You know, please don't take me being that serious. We're going to show a little bit more humility through all that. But that said, this game wasn't much of a surprise for us because a lot of the points that ended up materializing are points that we hit on in our preview pod. Um, Thad, what do you have to say on that? Yeah, I was really pleased in terms of the things we thought maybe going in and seeing some of that happen and you nailed it. The number one key to that game, um, obviously besides the defensive scores was Iowa's ability, uh, to put pressure on Penix up the middle and capitalize on a pretty weak offensive line for Indiana. And he didn't trust that knee and you could see him escape. You could see him, uh, throw the ball early, off the back foot, slide behind the line of scrimmage. Um, he wasn't 100% sure of that yet. Uh, as you had mentioned, you know, there were reports of him rubbing it, you know, at open practices and things like that. And we saw him going to the sideline, uh, messing with it, trying to stretch out his leg in different spots. And uh, it affected their ability to successfully run their offense. Yeah, and I think that was the biggest surprise if you're an Indiana fan. Right. You know, you kind of thought that um, even with Iowa secondary being that good and their linebacking core being that good, the defensive lines, you know, it, it has returned only one starter from last season of uh, Zach Van Volkenberg and the rest are all new faces. Right. And with Indiana, last year's offense was high powered, even when Penix Jr. went out of the game. And then on top of that, you know, you're adding in a former five star running back and Stephen Carr. And you're returning Ty Freifogel and Peyton Hendershot's becoming more of a veteran. And you kind of think that, well, at least the offense will keep us in this game if they can put up, you know, 21 points. But they never get off the ground. No, they had nothing going. Iowa had an answer to everything they wanted to do. Indiana early in the game wanted to try to run the ball. Um, And Iowa's defensive line were able to eat up the five, six blocks and linebackers, safeties, uh, and occasionally cornerbacks just cleaned up everything. And they were swarming to the ball, um, getting off of blocks and on the interior, on the ex- on the out wide. Uh, they just could not consistently block Iowa's front seven. And it led to their troubles, put them behind the sticks. And then they were throwing and spots that they don't want to throw. You know, they were behind the the sticks on other times because their left tackle couldn't stay in his position and his false starts were like him literally falling back like leaning and falling backwards like him trying so much to get back and get a set that 
it's not like he jumped. He's literally just falling almost over backwards. And it put them in a tough spot. And you can't do that against Iowa's defense, which was, in my opinion, better than what I was even expecting to see, really all levels. And we'll get into, you know, why, in our opinions, that was the case. But just a really impressive game from the defense. And the offense for Iowa uh, did what it needed to do. So it's going to be tough evaluating this Iowa defensive line coming out of this one because, you know, Indiana's offensive line was so bad right out the gate. I mean, the first few plays we saw whoever it was lining up at three tech or at a two technique or outside at the DN spots. They were overpowering the guy across from them. They were working techniques, um, varying techniques, whether it was a dip and rip move, whether it was extending the arms and ripping through, um, whether it was just shooting at an angle and getting past their guy. I mean, every single person looked had some success in this game. Right. Like even the guys who may have a little bit struggled, which one of those names that kind of surprised me that struggled a little bit, um, at least in one area of his game was Zach Van Valkenburg um, against the run. I thought that sometimes his run contain was a little bit sloppy. He sometimes got out of position a little bit too much, but I don't think that's anything surprising to us from just what we know as him being more of a pass rusher. Right. Um, and he's still not one of these guys who was an incredible strong point attack kind of athlete coming out of, um, you know, the community college or wherever we got him from Juco, I believe he was a division two division two player. Yep. Played a couple years division two before, uh, showing up to Iowa city. Yeah. Um, but one name that I really thought stood out tremendously and it, it kind of surprised me because I didn't think how I wasn't really expecting him to get a ton of playing time was Logan Lee. Um, you know, he was one of the guys who actually started in this game. I think that was kind of a surprise to some people, but right away you saw why, I mean, this guy's strong. He was working everything. And again, it's going to be kind of hard. We want to see more from these guys because Indiana's offensive line is really that truly that bad, but he was getting his way on every single snap. It felt like, and he looks like a slenderish guy, but he packs a massive punch. He's someone out of high school that I loved his, you know, makeup coming out of high school. And honestly, I expected him at first to come to Iowa and be a tight end. You know, 6'5", big frame. Um, thought he would end up as a tight end, or, but he kind of just outgrew it. And you can see why they put him on the defensive front. And he was somebody that's super tough nose. you know, just a, a football player, was, a, I believe, a wrestler as well. Um and at 6'5", uses great leverage. And as you said, he's just so stout at the point of attack. And his length, you know, gives him an advantage as well because he's able to use leverage, use his hands, create, you know, separation. And he was so impressive and a guy that you can see why the coaches are really excited about him because he has missed time due to injury. He, I'm pretty sure he had an ACL injury his senior year of high school. Since being in Iowa City, I, I believe he's had a shoulder and maybe some other injuries as well. So getting him healthy has been really important for that defensive front. And it's a position for an Iowa defense where if you don't notice him, usually it's a good thing because they're taking up blockers. You know, Jack Heflin last year had that role. Yeah. And it's like a lot of times you don't really notice him, so it's like they're doing well. But he flashed, and to do that from that position was um, – as you said, maybe a little unexpected, but I'm not shocked, but very pleasantly surprised. 
What are your thoughts on him, you know, looking as small as he does? I mean, he's lining up at two techniques sometimes as opposed to three tech of being just a gap shooter. I mean, this guy is actually standing up against guards. I am curious how that's going to play out against some of these more um, athletic and more talented offensive lines for sure, which is why, again, we're going to need to see a lot more of these guys before we cement kind of opinions about them, right? But what are your thoughts on just how he looks as a defensive end or a defensive tackle? Yeah, he doesn't. I mean, I think he's listed in the 280s range. Um, and he doesn't, you just look at him, he doesn't look that wide. But I think part of that is too, he is 6'5. Um, so he does carry it well. And I think he just does such a good job of battling every play. You know, that's a spot where you just, you have to give it everything you have every play. And he uses his length well to not let guys get into him. And he's able to lock them out and keep his weight down. Um, and that's a really difficult thing for a taller interior play player, especially a younger one. And we talked a little bit before we got started. I've rewatched a good portion of the game, but not all of it. But I'm excited to go back and really focus on him more. Um, because I want to see exactly what he's doing to be so effective all the time. Yeah. And you know, you brought up the point of him being a wrestler in high school. I absolutely see that there was no doubt in my mind when he started, you know, working the torque on his hands and just beating these guys at the point of attack with his hands. I'm like, that's definitely a wrestler background. That's just so prototypical of those kind of guys. Yeah. And just, it's a spot where Iowa hasn't had somebody that athletic in my opinion, in a while, you know, he is a little undersized. I kind of think back, you know, way back to somebody like uh, Matt Kroll, who they had, I think is a red shirt freshman play. And he was really undersized. He was probably 270 by the time, you know, 265, 270 when he first was that red shirt freshman thrown in there. Um, but he's got a little bit of that style. You know, he's a fighter. He's got great, strong hands, um, good technique, and just is really effective in that position for Iowa. Yeah. And you know, it, it wasn't just Logan Lee who was shining out, obviously, you know, there, there was a, we got to see a lot of different players get a substantial amount of playing in time in this game on both offense and defense. Um, focusing, I guess, just on the defensive line, what are some other talking points or things that you maybe noted? Um, just whether you're impressed, whether you wanted to see more, um, what kind of stood out to you on the defensive line? The youth. I mean, just all those young guys that came in and and the amount of rotating they did. You know, they rotated, uh, I think, four guys at defensive end. There were four guys, I'm pretty sure, that played D-tackle as well. And a lot of young guys. And when Indiana was in passing situations and all of a sudden you saw, uh, obviously we expect Joe Evans to get in in some of those situations. And he was effective in that role. You know, didn't have any sacks, but pressure, forced Penix out of the pocket, chased him down and kind of enforced um, an incompletion. And I think even kind of forced the one interception that went to Dane Belton. Uh, Lucas Van Ness, another undersized defensive tackle um, that got in there in past situations and, and really shined in those situations. And the one that I noticed the most was Deontay Craig uh, at defensive end. I thought he looked... Like he was ready to make a big splash eventually. You know, he held his own out there and just looks like one of those compact defensive ends uh, that's able to 
eventually going to be able to get to the quarterback, but really can set that edge down the road. Yeah, you know, focusing on Deontay Craig, he's one of those guys that just has naturally low movement, despite the fact that, you know, he is 6'3". Like, he's not like a, you know, a super small, undersized defensive end kind of guy. Um, But he moves naturally low. He's explosive and fluid out of that low compact movement, which also contributes into, you know, him being explosive the way that he is. And I think that gives a little bit of excitement to that lefty end spot that we were talking about in our um, just a lot of our preview podcasts with, you know, over there you have John Wagner. um, You have Joe Evans on sort of the third and long specialty kind of role. But then it's a big question mark. And we haven't been that impressed with John Wagner in the past. And Joe Evans isn't a guy that you want on the field um, through one, like about two snaps, uh, I guess, per drive, right? Like kind of in that range. He's not an every snap kind of guy. Deontay Craig looks like he could definitely be that guy. Yeah, you know, 6'3", 263 pounds is what he's listed at. And came in kind of with the reputation of being a guy that they thought could really get after the passer. So I was most impressed to see uh, his ability on run defense because that's something you know a guy that's kind of a pass rush specialist is he able to get and really uh, hold his edge there and let the linebackers or let the safeties make the plays and he did a really good job of that Um, and that's the big thing that you want to see like is he able to get out there and just hold his spot and I thought he did a really good job of that oh yeah and you know, talking about, again, we're, there's so much youth. I literally had Iowa's roster up on my my laptop screen while I'm watching this game. And I'm just like, all right, who's number 29 at wide receiver? Oh, it's Jackson Ritter getting snaps. I didn't even know that name until this game. And I felt like that was me on the defensive line. That was me once the, the blowout really took hold and the backups came in. Um, but Lucas Van Ness, he actually made some... Uh, impact early on in this game and some rotational kind of um, snaps and he looked explosive too and he's a long guy as well and again redshirt freshman so what did you see out of I guess Lucas Van Ness in that kind of role because I thought there was a lot of um, things to really build on with him he was somebody who kind of made a name for himself at uh, the kids day scrimmage was able to get to the quarterback and um, I know when they talked to Phil Parker, he had mentioned his name, that he was a guy that, you know, another one, tall, 6'5", but really undersized at this point as a redshirt freshman for that D-tackle role. I mean, it, he when he got to Iowa, you just said, you know, defensive end. You know, he had that long frame that Iowa really likes at defensive end, but he's somebody they've moved inside, and he's really effective on pass rush. I mean, he extends, he's quick off the ball so he's a tough handle for those guards and centers to really get to him especially somebody you know if he's trying to hit a gap or if he's taking one of those guards a lot of guards just aren't going to have the length to deal with somebody like him you know and I kind of when he's in there I kind of have flashbacks to when Iowa had somebody like a Matt Nelson in there and he's not he's not that tall he's not that big yet but it's somebody like that that they're just long they get their arms up they're hard to corral for an offensive line um, he's somebody that, you know, I think I could see some game just getting two holding call penalties against him, you know, because an interior defender just can't get their hands on him. So they're just grabbing at him. And on his sack, you know, he just kept working to the quarterback. And once uh, Penix Jr. had to step up, he just shed his the guard 
and wrapped him up and swarmed him to the ground. So another guy that, that went in there, and I mean, we talked about it, you know, Logan Lee, sophomore, Deontay Craig, redshirt freshman, Lucas Van Ness, redshirt freshman, another redshirt freshman that got in there, Ethan Herkett. So they just, it was just like that class on the defensive front um, is going to be really fun to follow and see how they progress and see how they help because all of them did a lot of good things. And, and we've talked about Indiana's offensive line. We're not able to fully judge where that defense is at yet. It reminded me, it kind of reminded me when Iowa plays somebody like a Miami of Ohio or a Mac team. It's a lot of yeah. big guys. You know, they're <laughs> like, you see them out and they're like, yeah, they look like, you know, those are division one bodies. Those are big offensive linemen, but they just don't move. Like there wasn't, not the hip bend wasn't there the hand placement they just weren't able to move with Iowa's defensive line yeah and you know just building on the point this did feel like a tune-up game and this is a top 20 ranked team nationally and a team last year that put the fear of God in the Ohio State Buckeyes in the second half of a football game in in conference you know in the regular season which doesn't really happen um, unless you're Iowa and Iowa City Um, but it really did kind of feel like a tune-up game in the sense that, you know, Indiana's offensive line wasn't able to compete. They just they were so outmatched talent-wise. They are in about four tiers below um, comparatively to Iowa's defensive line talent. And again, Iowa's defensive line just lost their three best players um, from last year's team. And they're still doing that to Indiana's offensive line. So it's going to be a long year for them if they can't figure out something. Yeah, th- not just their three best players, but three guys on NFL rosters. Yeah, I mean to lose yeah. three NFL level players and then to be able to just you know bring this group in, and I'm not expecting them to play at the level of last year's defensive line, but you see those flashes and you see how they play together and how maybe they're not making some of the splash plays. Like maybe nobody's gonna you know, make an interception return like Davion Nixon had last year or some of the plays that Golson made or eating some of the double or almost triple teams of Heflin. But it's a group that can do the little things right now and they supplement each other well or complement each other well maybe um, in how they, you know, they just make make the plays that they needed to make. Yeah, there wasn't anything that you watched them on any snap, even a snap that didn't get home, and you're like, wow, that is a superstar, right? Where you saw Davion Nixon last year, you thought superstar. When you saw some of these Chauncey Golston pass rushes, you saw a superstar. I do think Deontay Craig is a guy that down the road this season could really take that step and be like, okay, he's shown some serious flashes. I think that's the one name I'm looking at. With Logan Lee, I think you nailed it where – you know, he wasn't doing anything super flashy, but he was manhandling guys. He was executing his assignments, especially in the run game. And that that's really all this defensive line needs to do. Yeah, they if they're holding those blockers um, and letting the back seven do what they do, and I'm excited to talk about that group because there's a few players that, that stood out a lot, you know, and, and they made so many plays and a lot of their ability to make plays was predicated on those front four guys eating up four to six blockers each play. Let's talk about the back seven. I, I'm I'm chomping at the bit to talk about really the linebacking core plus Dane Belton um, and, and Justin Jacobs, if uh, you want to consider him that cash roll. But 
I we have I think we have differing opinion, opinions on this, or at least just an interesting discussion of just philosophy and just in general football talk. But again, you know, we talked about this linebacking core in all of our previews. We talked about them all last season. They're a talented group, even minus Nick Neiman. And, you know, Dane Belton showed out in this game, I think, for the first real, real time of showing all that potential and then some. Um, Jack Campbell, a little bit more, I guess, on on the quiet side, if you want to put that in quotations, but still showed a lot of talent. Crazy athlete, great player. Um, definitely going to be an impact guy this season. Seth Benson had a phenomenal game. I mean, as far as the linebacking core is concerned, we have there's not a guy on the roster right now that I think scrapes across offensive line better than he does or stays in his run fits better than he does. I think he moves better laterally than Jack Campbell because Jack Campbell's more of a um, straight line directional momentum kind of runner. And and uh, Seth Benson's more of like the prototypical what you see Erlacher trying to fit a run lane kind of thing um, where he's sliding really choppy and, and he's not missing his steps. And then that also brings us to Justin Jacobs, who in the the slim amount of snaps that he took showed out amazingly. I mean, this guy is a special player and I I think I've mentioned it on our, our preview to the season podcast, but Justin Jacobs for me really profiles in the same mold that I was using Jack Campbell in right now, not as much uh, Seth Benson. And that creates um, a big issue because I, it, and I think this is where we're going to have a really interesting discussion because your take, because we talked about this, your take is that you can't take Seth Benson on the field with how active he is around the line of scrimmage. And I, I agree with that, but it's like, how can you keep a guy who looks like Justin Jacobs off of the field? It's a, it's a problem right now to try to figure out for this coaching staff. um, Because where I was going to start was Dane Belton. Oh my goodness, what yeah. a game he had um, in all areas. And and you look at his play, and it's really, uh, the thing that I think about is this is why Phil Parker wants that cash position out there. Because he does everything. You know, whether it's splitting two offensive linemen to make a tackle for, the lo- for loss on a um, handoff. You know, whether it, it's staying on coverage. He truly is a Swiss Army knife on defense. And his, I thought for the first time, you know, I think he's had great moments in his two years, but for the first time, I thought he was playing so free and just without thought. And it's because all that thought is pre-snap, you know, once a snap happens, he is reacting and letting that athleticism, letting that natural ability take over and to watch him just react and see things and make those plays was something really special. And it ties into, you know, you talking about Justin Jacobs, like, okay, I think one of Iowa's problems problems is that <laughs> four of your best players are in a spot where they're using really three guys. You know, right now they have three spots for the linebacker slash cash. And Campbell, Jacobs, Benson, and Belton are four of your best defensive players. So what do you do? And it's a situation, maybe it's, um, you know, a little bit of matchup based or certain, maybe it's uh, down and distance based, but I'm with you. I thought Jacobs was great. I I looked at him down at 26, I'm going to check my notes again, 26 snaps um, that he was out there and he 
graded terrifically in every aspect of those. Um, we had a, a message after the one tackle he made out in the flat, just to see what he is capable of. Uh, you can't wait to see what, what he's going to do down the road. And the coaching staff, I'm sure, is trying to figure out what's the best way we can use those four players because all four of them are have the ability to be like top-end players in the conference. And, you know, it becomes very interesting. And I think, especially if you're the Iowa coaching staff, because I'm going to make this point, and I think I talked about it before on this podcast, but Justin Jacobs is far too good to be a backup at this point in his career, especially if you're talking about backup for the next two years, right? So what is that going to lead to? If you're that good, you're going to transfer out. So I was, if you're Iowa's coaching staff, you've got to find a way to get this guy on the field as much as possible. And I think a lot of that can hinge on whether you can trust Seth Benson in coverage. Um, Because if he can flip that switch and turn into that, and we saw him in coverage quite a bit in this game, actually, and he didn't look terrible. Um, I think there's questions about his uh, fluidity in space, right? But at the same time, if you can just be decent at it and not just a one-trick run fitter, that's going to open up a lot of possibilities to get Justin Jacobs, Jack Campbell, and Seth Benson along with Dane Belton on the field because Dane Belton's good enough in coverage. Jack Campbell looks pretty decent in coverage. Justin Jacobs, I, he hasn't had a lot of coverage reps, but it's hard to imagine that that guy with that kind of athleticism can't be a weapon in space and, and just running around floating. Um but you got to get him on the field. He's too much of a weapon that you can use as a blitzer. We saw a lot of that with Dane Belton in this game. Um, just the willingness of Phil Parker to maybe kind of unload him uh, towards the quarterback and kind of use him in, in a role that um, West Virginia, he's used their safeties in the past with like the Carl Josephs of the world. Um, but you got to get him on the field somehow. Phil Parker is on the record saying he's their best coverage linebacker. You know, so he's he's somebody that, obviously the coaches trust and it's really hard for me too because like I always know when I'm trying to evaluate players one hole I have is like I love long athletic linebackers like I naturally definitely want to slide to somebody like Jacobs over Benson like when I'm watching him and I see somebody Benson's listed at 6-1 but that's being very generous like I I would that might be with like pretty tall cleats like okay Seth go wear your cleats and stand up to this one while we measure like but he's a really you know he's as good as anybody in his run fits and being able to shed there's a play early in the game where uh as you mentioned Van Valkenburg kind of gets too far inside loses his leverage Benson's there takes on the right tackle chuck or the left tackle chucks him and makes the play um, so it's like that sort of thing where you're just really impressed with what they're doing or what he's able to do to make that play. So, yeah, they've got to find a way to make those guys fit those guys. And, okay, so now you look, how do you get them all in the field? Does somebody like Kayvon Merriweather, who's played well, is he the one that you have to slide out? Yeah. And again, you know, this is a problem in quotations, but they have too much talent right now. It feels like, um, man, cause yeah, Seth Benson, he doesn't just run fit as well as anyone. He run fits better than everyone. I feel like, you know, with, with Jack Campbell, there are still moments as good as he is. And as 
strong as he is and his, his ability to uh, fight through blocks and climbing blocks and then end up making the play sort of masks how sometimes his footwork can be a little bit um, false. Sometimes there's some missteps in there. With Seth Benson, it's like watching a, a run-fitting robot. Um, you know, he's going to find his way to angle himself to the running back and fit the hole that he's supposed to fit. Even in situations, again, in, in zone uh, in a zone running scheme, you know, the, the hole is going to be changing as the play goes on a lot of time. And Seth Benson has been so reliable in just fitting the right hole, making the right reads. And there were plays in this game, um, especially in the first quarter, where he blew up um, a tight end motion underneath out of the backfield um, that almost kind of snuck out on Jack Campbell. Matt, uh, Matt uh, or Seth Benson read it so well that he was already sitting there in the flat and just immediately blew it up. So he's got good play recognition. He's the best run fitter on the team. He moves better than anybody as far as just playing the run. Three, four great guys in that little slot area where they're only playing three who could all start on any Big Ten roster, in my opinion. Yeah, I, you nailed it with with Benson and his movement. And, you know, that's part of the advantage of being a little bit, you know, more compact in his build is he's able to navigate some of that interior a little better than the other guys. So I was just like, go to my notes, okay, you look at, snap counts I'm pretty sure um you know during the regular bring it back up here uh in my notes so yeah we had Jacobs had 26 and then you go uh Benson had 44 snaps and Campbell had 56 so they're trying to get there they're trying to rotate some of those guys um but I think at this point you do some it's going to have to be some of that, you know, rotation. And I think a rotation for some of those guys is going to be fine. You know, we saw some of it last year as well, you know, because Neiman was pretty much all always in there. But you saw Campbell and Benson rotating in and out. And I think you're going to see some of that this year. And with this being, a, you know, a full season, I just think you're going to need that. And I think that's okay. And as long as everybody fits into their role and they can use them at the right time, then it's going to be something that works for them. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's a human element in football where if you are a good player and you know you're a good player, you want to be playing. And so you have to wonder how comfortable are, whether it's Justin Jacobs or Seth Benson taking that back seat, not because, you know, they're tired or, or whatever it is, or they just need to get spelled for a series or two. But because the other guy is equally as good or, you know, should be playing, whatever the reason, will they will they put sort of, I guess, their um, I don't want to say ego because that feels too harsh, but just their their ability to, you know, OK, I'm going to take the backseat on this one because um, we're all good and I'm just I'm fine being the backup. I don't think every football player, especially great football players, are wired that way. Yeah, you know, it's. Can you let your, how do you handle that with your pride? Because you, you know, you deserve to play. All of those guys deserve to play. And, you know, I'm, I'm just really interested to see because I think Phil Parker will find the right pieces. You know, think back to last year. How do they start that season? And obviously, um, somebody like, obviously for last year, Jack Campbell missed the first bit, but I'm pretty sure. You know, somebody who's not even on the roster anymore started. 
And then partway through that game, I saw snaps decrease. So Phil Parker is not one to just say, well, this is who it is. These are my guys. I'm, I'm running the whole season. He's going to continue to give those guys opportunities to show who deserves to be on the field. Yeah, and I, I, I foresee this being a discussion that, you know, we talk about later on in the season, and I hope that Phil Parker can find that perfect balance. And I, I mean, there's no reason to um, doubt him, right? He's he's proven as much to just give him the benefit of the doubt, um, because right now it looks almost impossible. But you never know. Um, I imagine multiple fronts are a possibility, um, not just the the sort of the four two and the cash kind of role um, areas. I, it's going to be interesting, and I'm very excited to watch that position group because it's definitely the most talented on the team. Um, it's definitely the most stacked on the team, um, and that's even including the offensive line and and you know the running back position. But um, let's talk about the back end because we have Josh Jackson 2.0 and Riley Moss taking two pick sixes um, to the house in in the first game. Uh, Man, they they made a lot of splash plays, and there was also a lot of dropped interceptions despite that high interceptions number. Um, what were your thoughts and takeaways from the secondary? And I know it's kind of tough to evaluate them from the broadcast angle because they cut off the screen halfway through half of their plays. But um, what were your thoughts and takeaways from that group? I thought they did a great job, obviously. <clears throat> I was really pleased with, you know, outside, I think Fry Fogel got loose. I mean, he really got loose kind of one time early where he's able to cut across the field and, and run and get some open space. Um, then in a cover two situation, Benson just maybe left a little bit too early on him one time and he was able to get down the field and and uh, get inside the 20. But other than that, they just swallowed guys up. And whether it was the linebackers, whether it was Belton, whether it was the corner, you know, there were just no spots it felt like. I mean, Iowa had three interceptions. There was a fourth that was called back for penalty. As you mentioned, there were a couple of other ones that could have maybe been interceptions. Um, But just, I thought they were more, they were very aggressive going after the ball, not just for interceptions, but like going for the breakup. And just really were all over those Indiana receivers and the tight end, and, you know, you kept thinking, okay, here's this offense that's going to get going at some point, and they were just never able to get open because those guys were not creating wide open spaces. I think there were two times or maybe three times the whole game where you're like, okay, that guy kind of got open or had a non-contested catch, and Iowa on the back end, I mean, obviously Moss had the two big splash plays, but I thought everybody was really good in coverage, and beyond that, were really good with their run defense as well. You know, I thought Hankins took a big step forward in his tackling near the line of scrimmage. We talked about last year, there were times where maybe that was kind of a weakness, at, you know, his ability or maybe willingness to go go stick his nose in there near the line of scrimmage. And he did it a few times. So that, I thought, beyond just their coverage skills, uh, the way they affected the run game was really good too. Yeah, you know, um, with Hankins... We talked about, I think, in our preview to Nebraska last year was the one, just because they swing it out so often, um, that they're going to try to target Matt Hankins on that outside because he, he really struggled to set the edge. And what did Nebraska do in that game? They really took advantage of him not being able to set the edge. But that was clearly a point of emphasis for him this offseason. And it, it made a difference. I mean, he was taking on right tackles. He was taking on pulling guards. He was taking on tight ends on that edge. 
and not just running into him and, and sort of stalemating him. He was knocking them back or at least stopping them dead in their tracks. So that was a clear improvement. I thought that was a, a stark um, improvement. It really like brought attention to me, I guess. Yeah. I, as you said, it was, it was one of those things that you saw him in there. Like, okay. Yeah. Like that's a player that came back for an extra year, you know, and, and setting the tone on that end. And then, um, you know, didn't have his name pop up. I didn't feel like he was around the ball maybe as much as sometimes, but I thought Kerner did a really nice job. And the other thing I'm going to mention with him is he's the one making all the calls for the defensive backs. So, you know, to have that experience back there and to have those defensive backs, I know when they mentioned when Moss was interviewed afterwards, um, some of their different coverages and they kind of saw some things coming and had, had some reads or some communication back there about what might be happening. Um, that's a, a veteran player leading that group as well, making sure that everybody's on the same page with their coverages because outside of really that one time where there was a missed exchange, uh, Iowa's exchanges on their zone coverages, especially on the around the middle of the field with the linebackers and the safeties, uh, was midseason form. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's ways, even without, even with the broadcast angle not being the best for watching secondary and evaluating it, there are certain, certain uh, keys that players give off before, during, and after a play that really indicate that a coverage is being stingy and tough. We've talked about in the preview that, you know, Michael Penix Jr. is a gunslinger and a guy who's not willing or not afraid to throw it anywhere on the field, no matter the coverage, whether it's double coverage or tight coverage, he he trusts his ability to throw it. But when you're bracketing a receiver over the top, you're riding his hip, you know, there's nothing getting under people, there's not a lot of separation, you can't even throw it. You can't even bring yourself to throw those kinds of balls. So you saw him sort of pumping, but almost as like sort of a, um, just being hesitant and not trying to draw a defense to bite. And then you also saw after some of these throws – Matt Hankins, whether the ball was in the vicinity or way off target, and it was just in the area of Matt Hankins, Matt Hankins was dogging the receiver after the play, and that shows that, yeah, I've been working you and running your shit all game, dude. Uh, so you have to Matt, like see the confidence in the secondary. If they were getting beat play after play or on a number of plays, they're not doing those kinds of things. And that's an experienced Indiana group, you know, that was coming in. They lost one of their receivers, but, you know, you bring in a transfer, you've got other guys for a for an offense that averaged, you know, when Penix played, you know, that they were putting up close to 300 yards. You know, they he put up almost 500 yards through the air against Ohio State. You know, so it's a group that has a lot of confidence in their ability to make plays and to get open. And they just weren't getting open. And when they, you know, when Penix would just have to dump it off to, you know, somebody in the flat, then they were getting stuck right away. You know, you mentioned Benson the one time, Belton did it once, Hankins did it, Moss did it. Like guys were just coming up and putting a hat on them right away. And you could tell that their uh, receiving core was getting pretty frustrated by what was going on. Yeah, there were some focus drops for the Indiana receivers, probably expecting a hit. Because, again, their Iowa players were always in the area, always trying to contest the catch point. Um, it's interesting when you also, uh, with zone coverage, um, especially the way Iowa runs it, it's such a veteran. I, it's really a thing that plays more in the hands of vets and really intelligent players, right? But 
this is a group that, again, has played with each other for a long time. Um, even Kayvon Merriweather, who just got brought into the fold last year, now he has sort of a season and a two off seasons, or actually more than two off seasons of experience playing with this unit. And communication is such a big part. Um, one thing that really stood out to me when watching the defense is how much chatter, chatter there was from the safeties and on the back end and how little chatter there was between the front seven guys. You know, there didn't seem to be a real leader in the linebacking core right now from a communication standpoint. Um, we saw a couple times from Jack Campbell sort of redirecting linemen on defensive line pre-snap. But other than that, there wasn't a lot of counters. Um, sometimes they got in trouble with that when there was um, sort of a strong side to a, a side that wasn't um, loaded up with Iowa defenders. And then Indiana would sort of outman them to that side. That's sort of a fix that comes with communication and just saying, hey, we need to shift. We got we to shift into this kind of package or this kind of look. Um, but yeah, the chatter on the back end was very noticeable. And again, yeah, it's Jack Kerner. You know, it's Matt Hankins. These guys are are serious veteran types, and Matt Hankins is now in his sixth year, and it shows. Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot to add to that. And to watch that group have a game like that, uh, you thought they were going to be good, you know, and, and I think it's fun for them too because Indiana's secondary is getting all this pub coming into this game and into this season as, you know, one of the best are they the best in the Big Ten? One of the best in the country. Uh, and they obviously have a very good back seven and secondary. But I think it was this, you know, you could. I felt like this Iowa secondary was playing with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. Like, okay, you know, your group, your side is getting all the talk. This Indiana, this high-powered offense is coming in. Um, and they protected that field and did it physically uh, from snap one. Yeah, and you know, I it's so cool to watch these guys together because again, there's so much there's so much veteran leadership on this team, but it's not like this, oh, they've just been around the program and starting for a while. No, they're actually good on top of being intelligent and on top of being veterans. And it's almost like we've seen Matt Hankins, Jack Kerner, Riley Moss not only build up the experience, not only build up the intelligence, not only build up the comfortability within the scheme, but it they've might have hit their ceiling and their peak and from a college that from what they can achieve in college. Right. And they're all clicking at the same time. And it's so cool because I think they, I don't know if they can get better than this. They might've hit their ceiling in college football. I mean, they didn't let Indiana get a touchdown. Like, yeah. I, 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 I wish I could go back and find like, there's not a lot of prop bets for college sports, but like in the NFL, you can get some like individual team scores. Like what's the bet for Indiana, that Indiana team not getting in the end zone, you know, and really only kind of sniffing the red zone one time, maybe like they just weren't ever in position to score. And that's a huge credit to the secondary and the defense as a whole, what they did um, to just completely lock out that offense. So I actually have an answer for you on that because I did look at this prop bet or at least something similar. Um, the prop bet was both teams to score a touchdown in this game. And that was minus 3000. <laughs> so if you put that in your parlay, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe it either. <laughs> <laughs> Holy. 
Yeah, that's one that um, you would not expect. It's like one of those, you know, sometimes some of those sites right now, it's like they try to give you like the free, easy to try to get you in. It's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, bet $5, win two if your team makes, you know, scores a, a touchdown. Or, or, yeah, yeah, makes a field points. goal. Or, yeah, whatever <laughs> it is. And then it's like, okay, you know, win $200, Indiana gets a touchdown. And you're like, all right, I'm in. Here we go. And then it's just like, you just walk. You know, you're probably already an Indiana fan, and now your tail's really tucked between your legs. <laughs> All right. We've talked about the Iowa defense, you know, pretty extensively, and and for good reason. Um, the offense is also a part of this team, believe it or not. Um, and again, a lot of new faces on there, um, especially once the blowout really cemented itself. There was um, a lot of new faces out there, but there was a lot of um, guys, youth early on in this game too. Um, that some of the guys we weren't expecting. So I'll I'll let you pick the starting point for this offense. Um, there's a lot of different areas we can hit. Um, I'll put it in your hands for this one. The big thing when I'm looking at this game is I'm really in looking at what they did that first quarter and really most of the first half. The second half, you know, we've talked about it so much. Like Iowa is a complementary team. And the second half, part of the offense's job was to just keep that clock going. Um, not that they weren't going to pass, not that they weren't going to try to score, but there was a premium on let's just keep that clock going. Uh, I think it was like the second or third play of the second half. You see preachers like take a look at the play clock and like just let it get, I think you got to let it get to six or seven. You know, like even that early, we're like, okay, here's here's our scheme. But the big thing that I noticed early in the game, and we've talked about like what is an offensive coordinator's first 15 or so plays. And the things I noticed that Brian Ferentz had the offense doing was early in the game, uh, he had a run for Tyrone Tracy. you know, And they came out, first play, what's Iowa going to do? Wait, shotgun, empty backfield? Like right from the get-go so he's they were looking to do different things um i thought the things i noticed that jumped out the most a lot of runs to the right side especially early on in the game um and then just different motions and getting guys in different spots and especially tyrone tracy like he i think led the team in snaps on offense and he was in there doing a lot of different things they got him the ball um a couple times on passes, a couple times, you know, you could see he was the main target. Like he was looked number one, um, but they were trying to get him involved. They were trying to get all different people involved. And early on, I thought you could see Iowa just, okay, how is this Indiana defense going to react to some of our formations and just getting your best players involved. So getting Goodson, you know, getting Tyrone Tracy involved, getting Sam Laporta involved and seeing how those guys can play. And then from there, once it got open, it's like, all right, let's just do the basics, get our guys reps, and close this one out. Yeah, and you know, you brought up a lot of runs to the right. That can also be correlated to runs away from Micah McFadden. <laughs> Not only because he's a great player, but because he's he's a heavy blitzer. So if you're running that direction, all of a sudden you have an extra guy crashing the line of scrimmage. That can sometimes cause issues in the run game for a team that works in tandem like Iowa. They can throw off one player and all of a sudden a, a defensive lineman's running free, which did happen. 
Um, and a lot of that became down to actually miscommunication from Iowa's offensive line, mostly on the left side, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, just because Cody Yance is such a solidified player. and But that said, you know, at left tackle, Mason Richmond got a lot of work. Um, and there was some definitely rotation over there. Connor Colby got in at right guard for a little bit. He had a, at last his last snap that he took was or at least in the the first half. The last snap he took, there was some miscommunication on that that led a defensive lineman to run free. Um, but those are the kind of things I think will work themselves out. That said, I found it odd. Um, a lot of Indiana fans are kind of clinging to this notion that well the defense played well enough for. Um, them to win the game or at least be competitive in this game I didn't see it that way for me when I watched Indiana it it kind of looked like they didn't know what was going on I was surprised at how poorly coached they actually were um there were a lot of plays where they were just so outnumbered pre-snap to one side like on the Tyler Goodson touchdown run um let's just focus on that because that was clear and obvious you know, although it was a well-timed play call by Brian, Indiana's defense just looks so unprepared um, because Iowa basically clearly made the boundary side their strong side. They lined two tight ends up in line, um, two guys who are known as being good blockers, um, and the Indiana defense countered that by putting one scrawny, their smallest cornerback on their team, out there on an island, no safety help over top. He was guarding the boundary by himself. Um, I think he's like 5'10", 5'11". Um, so, and again, Tyler Goodson, Sam Laporta, uh, Luke Lachey, or am I saying, is it Luke Lachey? Yes. Okay, Luke Lachey. And he has to set that edge by himself and then make the play um, because nobody was filling in behind him. And guess what? It didn't work. <laughs> and right off the bat, I'm like, how does that even happen? With a team that has a defensive-minded head coach and has known sort of for their defense at times. Not only how do you let that happen, but then that cornerback takes an inside shot. Like, he ha- he's not trying to force Goodson back. It's like, he runs right between the two t- tight ends. It's like, I'm to, just going to To be fair, you know, what else is he supposed to do? <laughs> like, just stand there and let Goodson run over him out wide. Because, I mean... He just ran right in there, and then there's there's nobody. And then Tyler Goodson's off to the races, and the line, like, I've rewatched that play so many times, just watching how, like, guys on the interior are just, everybody on Indiana's defensive line just got grabbed, turned, and smothered inside. And then I'm pretty sure uh, Laporta was kind of the lead man on the outside, and then he's out there, okay, just kind of, pick up clean up the scraps on the outside and Goodson was off to the races and and I'm with you with like Indiana's defense I thought um in the secondary they had some their coverage was good in some situations but what they were doing up front you know was not bothering Iowa uh their blitzes really were not super effective um Iowa was able to pick those up and then as the game went on, like you can say, well, Iowa only averaged like three point something yards per carry out. So if you take Goodson's touchdown and run, but like as the game went on, like I was just going to run the ball and they don't yeah. care if they don't care if they're getting three, four yards because they would pick up a couple decent ones here and there, um, you know, and then they went wildcat and 
mostly effective. There was one time where uh, a blitzer got through and Goodson got tackled right away for a five-yard loss that cost him his 100-yard game. But, you know, I the Indiana defense, you know, you think, okay, you, you know, we mentioned it last week, they bring in these transfers for that defensive line to, to strengthen a unit that they really struggled in last year. Uh, but everything else behind them was fine. And there was no at no point in that game was I like scrambling through the roster stuff being like, oh, who's that lineman? Like, what did he do? Iowa just did what it does, you know, and they mixed in a lot of first down passes, especially play action. And were, you know, they weren't very effective. That's one thing that Iowa just really is going to have to do as the season goes is be more effective on play action. It's one place that right now um, they're not getting the outcomes that they need to from those looks. I think uh, Petrus was two for seven on play action looks and was pressured too much in those situations where you're hoping you're kind of holding up the linebackers um, and defensive line. But other than that, Iowa just kind of did whatever it wanted, ate up chunks of yards, ate up clock, and it was like Indiana was just by the second half like, fine, like we're okay, let's just get to the showers, hit the bus and head home. Yeah. And you know, it, it is interesting because, um, you would expect Indiana to line up in a lot of, uh, packed box looks just to try to stop, um, Iowa's offensive line and Goodson. And that was somewhat of the case, but almost not really. It, there was definitely a respect put on Iowa's passing game. Um, and part of that is because Brian intentionally spread guys out, um, and space guys out and made it so that, Indiana couldn't cram the box um, right down the middle or on the outside spots, but it I you know I was kind of surprised that Iowa's offensive line didn't more so dominate. I guess you know there were some athletic guys. Ryder Anderson, uh, the transfer from I believe it was Ole Miss on Indiana's defense, he's a pretty athletic guy. And then there was also some other moments where um, some linebacker athleticism really showed out. And they caught him on a on a backside run. You know, they come from the backside, just not sealing off, I guess, the back end of the runs. And also, you know, there's communications issues, obviously some youth guys. Um, I thought Mason Richmond played pretty good for the most part, but it was it was miscommunications from guys like Cody Ince that I I was hoping I wouldn't see. Um and, and Connor Colby probably did be expected, but obviously Tyler Linderbaum. You know, you have an anchor that is the best offensive lineman in the country um, in the interior, and it, it looked every bit of that on, on Saturday. One thing for Ince I will say is um, <clears throat> they've talked about, like, he's kind of their most versatile guy. You know, when we saw Linderbaum get shaken up, who went over to Petrus and started getting snaps with him? Cody Ince. Mm-hmm. You know, there was talk about if they can't find a tackle, who can you swing out to tackle? Cody Ince. So part of me wonders, and I know Kirk Ferentz has mentioned it, like they have to be fair to him. I wonder if, you know, because he's had to be moved around so much and there's been some talk about some injuries along the offensive line um, during camp, obviously uh, kind of shots out, but I know Brent, Britt missed some time. Uh, Linderbaum might've missed a little bit of time. Um, so they've been moving some pieces around. So somebody that's experienced as him and, and has had as much success, I'm wondering if he's just been a little bit of everywhere and it's just got to kind of got to settle into that left guard position. I'm going to give him kind of a pass for this one because like you said, you, you hope not to see that out of him going forward. 
Yeah, and you know, again, this is this wasn't coming in a tune-up game, but it turned into a tune-up game where I was sort of testing certain things out. Um, they felt comfortable rotating guys in um, and sort of being fluid with where they played certain players and how often they played, right? Um, and that that's an incredible thing when you're talking about a season opener against a top 20 team and a, a team that a lot of people thought was going to come in here and beat Iowa at home. So, I yeah, again, I'm going to give a pass to a lot of the things, the negative things we saw in week one from the offense. And I, to be honest, that's kind of few and far between. We're kind of almost nitpicking a little bit. I'll be clear on that. It's not like Cody Ince, the entire game was a problem. It was just three or four plays, honestly, that are very easily correctable, but you just don't want to make them in a game that actually matters. And it's somebody that we've talked about a lot in the past, and we think he's, you know, one of their best players along the offensive front and somebody that I'm sure will get those cleaned up. And, you know, we'll talk about it down the road, what it means, you know, in their future games. But yeah, somebody that, you know, has the ability to do so many things. And, you know, you wonder if he's trying to make up for having such a young player next to him. Um, I don't know, but like you said, overall, uh, I thought some people said, oh, well, the offensive line wasn't getting enough push from the run game and this and that. But uh, I think you leave that game really pleased with the direction that they're headed um, if they can clean up some of those communication issues. For sure. And, you know, once Kyler Shot gets back, you're again, you still have the best interior in, in all the country, in my opinion. Um, no matter who's at left guard. And I, I, I want it to be Cody Yance. He He's shown enough to that he's a, he's a good player. So, um, But again, a lot of youth. Mason Richmond looked really good in a lot of snaps. Um, the, ones, the one QB hurry or QB hit that he did give up was one of the Cody Yance communi- miscommunications, in my opinion. Um, he just followed his uh, his guy, his assignment, too long in the Tower Lindebaum and never really came off that exchange and, and aided and help. And again, that could, again, be an issue with Mason Richmond not communicating. You know, so much comes into play when you're in pass pro of just communication and being on the same page. Um, and Iowa didn't have any of those issues really last year because they were just such a cohesive unit. So again, a lot of these things are like, oh, well, it's, you know, it looks different than last year. And again, two new tackles, um, injury or right guard. So there's going to be some, I guess, working through the growing pains. And that's why you have tune-up games traditionally in the past. Um, and I'm, that's also why I'm glad that those miscommunications didn't really hurt Iowa in this one. That said, let's move on to the, I guess, the player that everybody wants to talk about. Everybody always has an opinion on. Well, I guess it's just the position as a whole, but specifically Spencer Petrus. Um, what were your takeaways from him in this game? He obviously he finished. Now that I'm looking at, I'll just I'll just say a stat line real fast: thirteen to twenty-seven, one hundred forty-five yards, no TDs, no picks. Um, what were your takeaways? I guess from his performance, it was kind of what I was expecting. You know, it was some of the things that we've seen him be very successful with in the past. Some of the things maybe that he struggled with in the past. Um, but I. Personally, I thought I saw a pretty significant step forward from last year. You know, from the beginning of last year to the end of last year, I thought he took a step forward. But I thought early in the game, um, every pass that first half, you know, I think 
I marked, I think total, he had kind of two passes that I thought were poor passes. You know, one that would have been a touchdown to Tyrone Tracy. Another, uh, Tracy had an out to the right side and his footwork got off and it just sailed way over his head out of bounds. But other than that, you know, I thought he was putting the ball on guys. Uh, Iowa clearly was targeting the middle of the field. You know, they went to the tight ends a ton, but even the passes to the receivers, a lot of them were on the interior. And that's something Iowa hasn't done a lot of in the past. I know one complaint has been just like too much on the perimeter, not utilizing the middle of the field. Well, they sure did against Indiana. And I thought Petrus did a great job with those. Um, and he he led the offense to do what they needed to do. You know, I thought some of his better plays were just, okay, I'm going to throw the ball out of bounds, something that Penix did not do, leading to an interception for Indiana. But, like, just, okay, roll out, escape the pocket, look, look, nothing there, throw the ball out of bounds, live to see another day. There was not a single time during that game against the Indiana defense that led the Big Ten in interceptions last year that I was holding my breath about a ball that was in the air. You know, I thought he when he missed, he missed to the right spot. And he put the ball on guys. And without seeing, you know, the the full, like, all 22 cam, it's hard to see, you know, were there guys in spots that he missed. Or, and we don't know his read progression. Um, but I thought, you know, he led the offense. There were no situations where they were at the line of scrimmage having to call timeouts because of play clock. You know, that's something on the quarterback to get him in and out of the huddle quickly, get guys lined up. And those are things that um, you see with young quarterbacks, and obviously he's not a first-year player for him, but he did all of the little things you want to see from an Iowa quarterback, and I would love to see that accuracy number come up. And I'm interested to see going forward what what that number looks like. But I thought his footwork looked better. I thought the ball placement was a lot better. Um, now we just got to see those completion numbers go up. Yeah, and you know, talking about the completion numbers, um, there's probably like four passes in there that could have easily been catchable, in my opinion, maybe even five. And you know, if you add in, let's just let's just be uh, old ultra um, aggressive with it, um, and just say he has five more completions on his 27 attempts. He's 18 to 27, and I don't think people are raising that big of a fuss, but because he's under that 50% completion number, I think that comes. It, it looks a little bit more glaring, right? But that's not necessarily the case, even though his performance as a whole, I kind of felt was a little bit mild. Um, I think he did a lot of things well, Um, a lot of things. And again, last year, just to state my opinion for people who might be listening for the first time last year, that and I both said, you know, down the stretch or down the um, towards the end of the season, Peters played a lot better. And he looked like not only just um, an average quarterback, but a very good one, potentially. And. You know, in this game, I, his intelligence is really is really uh, standing out um, again. But I think it might have even become more fluid with um, just post snap reaction, reacting to certain coverages. And Indiana mixed in a lot because when they blitz, they're trying to almost double cover, or I guess try to guess where the progressions are headed and double cover that guy just to throw it off a little bit and allow that blitz to get home. And you saw Petrus at multiple points really navigate that super fluidly and super well. Um, you know, when they did change that look, he's like, all right, well, he just bailed from that area. 
I have a route running underneath. I bet there's going to be a solo linebacker in the middle, carried away from the middle, and then again, hits Laporta down the seam or on a stick or, or something to that effect. There were a lot of throws that were put on the money in situations like that from him. Um, that said, you have the issue of him still just not... The game still seems a bit fast for him once he's out of the structure of the play call, right? There were some, there were multiple plays in the first half um, and throughout the game. Again, I haven't rewatched the entire game yet. I have game notes from the entire full game and I've rewatched the first half and a little bit more than that. But even in that little bit of a rewatch, there were some clear moments where he got out of his structure of, of his progressions for sure. And then it just kind of, He's like, all right, now what do I do? I'm going to, oh, I'm going to tuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to try to bail the pocket. Wait, what am I doing? And then when he's rolling out, this was, this is one of my biggest things because it's so awkward looking. Um, he's a great athlete. Uh, that said, when he rolls out of the pocket, he just always just drifts towards the sideline. Like he's almost running himself right to the boundary. He doesn't ever reset his feet and regain his base when he has the opportunity to. Um, he just kind of keeps rolling to the, the side and his receivers are kind of going into the, oh, this is backyard football scramble kind of thing. Like, all right, now just get open. And they flood to where he's flooding, but then they all end up towards the sideline because he's not regaining his base and they can't really freestyle and, and do their thing and get open um, that way. So not only does it hurt his chances to try to complete a play and maybe make a throw that's there, it hurts the receiver's ability and their athletic ability to try to get open and, and make a guy miss and, you know, potentially get a big play out of something that was nothing. Um, there was a play, I think it was the third play of the game. Um, yeah, let me check my, yeah, third play of the game. So I actually ran one of the win routes that we talked about um, in the uh, preview to this game where I want to say it was Laporta running down the seam and immediately he got bracketed. And unfortunately, when you run a win route, you know, and, and Iowa on this particular play, kept Potabom and Goodson into pass protect because they were expecting a blitz. The blitz never really came. So you have now seven offensive linemen, essentially, or seven pass protectors. And your number one option, you're really your one true progression of just throwing it deep is now bracketed. And the second that happened, you saw Petrus sort of like, all right, now what do I do? It's like, come on, you have seven pass protectors. Stick in there, try to navigate some um, offense but what he did is he just ran outside of the contain of his pocket and he kind of forced this awkward looking panic throw to Potabom and that almost got picked. And I think that was the worst throw that he had. And again, that was that was something we saw a lot against Nebraska last year and something that I was really hoping that in year two wouldn't be an issue that we could we didn't even talk about. But again, still young. Um, but the game does appear once the structure of the play breaks down to sort of be a little bit too fast for him still. And I thought there were several of those times where I liked a few times how he escaped the pocket, slid out, <clears throat> tried to get himself to an open spot to see things. But when Iowa does call a lot of those win routes or some of those shot plays, they do tend to go, even if it's not max protect, like very heavy protect. So maybe two or three guys, three guys to a route. And he does get in spots where it's like, okay, those three guys are covered. I know I have extra protection, but I'm not quite sure what to do with those. And 
you know, I'm interested to, we'll never know, but I'm not sure what he's coached to. If they're saying, okay, slide, if it's a short route like that, and when I say short, I mean just like short on players out there, like they're probably not going to get open if the team's dropped six guys. So just kind of scramble, look for if there's an outlet to, like you said, pot a bomb there, maybe it's Tyler Goodson, or get rid of it. Um, because sometimes when Iowa does call those plays, it there were times where it's like, okay, he was able to get open, he's given himself some extra time, and then either he's not seeing somebody open or there's just nowhere to go with the ball. Yeah, and you know, and on that, and I'll give uh, Petrus a little bit of leeway on that particular play call because it was an awkward one. Um, not only was it awkward for the fact that uh, seven players stuck in the pass protect, I kind of understand that point just in case you know they were blitzing. And again, this is a team that blitzes fifty percent of their plays on defense, at least coming off of last season. Um, but that said. I think from if you're Potabom or Goodson and you are that check down or that leak out, you have to read what the defense is doing quickly and then get into your route if they're staying home. And you have to be wary of the green dog blitz where they kind of just um, or the delayed blitzes that might throw you off a little bit. But they they hung in there for a, a little bit too long. Um, Petrus was already panicking before they were like, oh, maybe I should try to help him. So, again, the play call was or the play design was a little bit funky, and I think that contributed to uh, Petrus looking the way he did on that play. Goodson should be, you know, Goodson would be the guy in my mind that you would expect to leak out, and I just went back to that play, and he never does get out. And even Potabom, who does leak out, like even as that pass is coming, he's, his, I mean, his eyes are on Petrus, but he's still kind of just leaking down the field. You know, it's not really a good spot for somebody, an outlet player, a position for him to, even if he catches the ball, to make a play. You know, and he's just like, he kind of found himself extending downfield and he just kind of is drifting in that situation. Um, And, you know, as you said earlier, it's a spot where Petrus probably could have, you know, as he started to slide out, instead of breaking containment, just slide two, three steps over in the pocket, set your feet, check both sides, you know, where's Potabom, where's Goodson, see if you've got one of those guys. Because um, in that situation, Indiana only brought four guys, and it looked like a play where Iowa was kind of thinking they were going to catch Indiana in a blitz, and it just didn't happen. And, you know, but at the end of the day, uh, incomplete pass, you know, play call, they didn't get what they were expecting on defense, and you go on to your next one, which uh, the next play happened to be a 56-yard touchdown run. (laughs) that's also definitely worth noting um but yeah i agree you know there there's again we're nitpicking this because a lot of things went really well and the execution in a lot of phases was really good uh maybe not up to the par of last season but again first game of the season um first game for these guys playing in front of a home crowd full rowdy house of fans in over a year Um, And they're playing against a team that is, you know, they didn't show it that much, but they are a talented team. You know, this is a Big Ten team that is capable of winning eight or nine games this season. Um, So, you know, we're going to give a little bit of leeway because, yeah, this is usually when Iowa plays a Miami of Ohio or um, a Middle Tennessee State or something to that effect. And there's a lot of youth that they're trying to sort of uh, work into this roster or in the, into these starting two deeps and rotational uh, snaps. So there's a lot of things that were positives. There's a lot of things that we want to see more of and hope that they don't turn into 
issues down the road. And this is why I love that football's back. Yeah, I mean, it's just nice to be able to talk about what happened instead of trying to be like, oh, I'm looking forward to this happen. Oh, I can't wait for this season. Like, we actually get to talk about what Iowa football did and what did they do? They just completely dominated a ranked Big Ten foe right out of the gates. Yeah, and obviously next week, uh, Iowa State are in Ames um, against one of the best Iowa State teams that I was maybe ever faced. Um, I I would have to imagine it's one of the best, if not the best, just based on national regard. Um, and yeah, Ames is going to be rocking. I know that. The good part, you know, you think Iowa is going into this game, it's going to be, yeah, Ames is going to be rocking for that game. College game day is going to be in town for that game. But it's an Iowa team that it doesn't seem phased as far as when something happens to them. You know, I think both sides are led by guys who feel like, okay, we're just going to keep clawing at this, keep clawing at this. And, you know, for the Indiana game, it was blown out right away. Um, I'm interested to see how they react in that type of environment because it's been a long time since any of those players have played in a environment like that. Yeah, and and you guys just follow the podcast. Um, we you've been showing so much support. I mean, last week's podcast was definitely awesome. Uh, the one before that was probably our most viewed, or at least the most interacted with in a long time. Um, keep listening. Keep showing love. We'll be reviewing or previewing every single game this season. Um, we'll be recapping every single game this season. Um, follow Thad on Twitter at TNLS20. Follow me on Twitter at RobDFB. Um, but until then, you know, Thad, do you have anything left, I guess, to say about this Iowa-Indiana game before we sort of put that bow on it? 1-0 on top of the West Division. Um Really excited for next week, but great start to the season for the Hawkeyes. Yeah, uh, I'm so glad that football's back and they're building off right where they left off last season. So this is going to be a fun season, I think. And next week's game looks even better. So go Hawks. Um, Until next time, guys and girls, we will see you in future podcasts. Take it easy.